Hey folks, Lewis here. Merry Christmas in August! Our gift to you is our first and hopefully last partially re-recorded episode. After we recorded our third guest episode, we realized Nick's audio sounded like this. Nick and I painstakingly transcribed his audio to the best of our ability. He re-recorded it, and I cobbled it together. So sit back and relax as we riff on this truly horrendous Christmas-themed film. Welcome to the Proletarian Contrarian, the podcast where we reevaluate bad films through a leftist perspective. I'm Nick. And I'm Lewis. And joining us today for our third guest of our guest month is Molly. Uh, you might know her from Twitter as Socialist Dog Mom. Hi, Molly. Hey, guys. Great to be here to talk about this truly awful film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you came here for a really interesting uh, entry in the show today. Well, Lewis promised me a dog movie, but, you know, most dog movies, the dog dies, and I told him I can't watch a movie where a dog dies, and um, I don't, I might have rather watched a dog die. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, a dog kind of did die, uh, metaphorically, uh, not literally in this movie. Um, This is probably the worst film we've watched for this podcast. I think without a doubt. It's this or regarding Henry, honestly. Um, So, yeah, I did pick this movie. it was this or like, as Molly said, a lot of weird ass horror films from like the 70s or 90s, uh, some from the 80s. Uh, one I wanted to pick, it just definitely had way too much violence against animals. Um, it was called Man's Best Friend, uh, starring Lance Henriksen. And like, there's a shot because I watched it all on YouTube or I watched portions of it on YouTube where like this giant uh, Tibetan Mastiff swallows a cat whole. And I was like, no, let's not do that one. Let's skip that one. Uh, so instead, I picked uh, this uh, 1993 comedy, Look Who's Talking Now. Comedy is doing a lot of work there. <laughs> so um, some of our listeners might have heard of Look Who's Talking from 1989 and Look Who's Talking Too from 1990, uh, both directed by uh, Amy Heckerling of Fast Times at Richmond High and Clueless fame. Um yeah, she jumped ship on this one, folks. Uh, she wanted nothing to do with the third film. And to my understanding, she wanted nothing to do with the second film either. Uh, so just some random dude who did random 80s and 90s comedies called Tom Ropolewski took over. Yeah, he is one of the most depressing Wikipedia pages in existence. It's like stuff of this caliber and then this weird passion project, like this Game Boy movie or something. Like this video game movie for Disney called Game Boys, and it's languished in development hell for quite a while. It's never gonna gonna get made, obviously. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to rag on him. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, given this movie, I kind of do want to rag on him. Yeah, I think we're allowed to. Yeah, just he had a very odd and short-lived career. Yeah, and um, the film Game Boys he was supposed to make it just sounds like the Adam Sandler film Pixels. Like that's literally it. Um, some geeks have to fight armies of video game creatures so our guest molly uh, a lot of you might know her from twitter as we said previously um molly is there anything you want to plug or talk about yeah so most of what i do is um take municipal meeting minutes which is actually more interesting than this movie surprisingly (laughs) enough um yes you may know me from twitter socialist dog mom i go to charlottesville city council meetings and um I think I recently saw my work described disparagingly on local Reddit as um, MST3K for city government, which honestly I'll take as a compliment because it's like 
taking bad content and making it more interesting and digestible and like making it worth existing. So, um, yeah, so MST3K for local government. I think I'll, I'll, I'll adopt that. I'll take that. <laughs> that's, that's inspired. I like that. Yeah, that's great. Um, if it's not in your Twitter bio, uh, perhaps it should be. <laughs> and Molly, of course, you're a cat person. Uh, so this is an ironic movie pick. You know, it's surprising how much like hate mail I get about how I'm a lonely cat lady. Like it's in the name. It's in the name. <laughs> I do. I do have a cat. Her name is Professor Dorothy Jellybeans, but she doesn't get a lot of airtime. Yeah. Shout out to Dorothy. This goes out to you this episode. <laughs> I'm surprised the little cat humor was in this dog movie. Like, they really didn't make a lot of use of that. Yeah. There was no, like, cat chasing, cat taunting. I don't think there are any cats in it at all. I don't think there's a single cat in this film. Are there other animals at all, really? Well, there's there's dogs and wolves. That's it. Oh, uh, one time, Danny DeVito dog calls the people who want to adopt him. They're like a, a biker dad and son. Uh, he calls them snake people. Oh, yeah. Okay. But, like, he doesn't know what a snake is. Right, he's a he's a puppy at that mo- in that moment. Well, if we're gonna I, talk about like being born with some kind of knowledge, we have a fascinating read of this film. <laughs> I mean, there's just just tremendous inconsistency in their world building of dog consciousness. You know, like the when he's a puppy, his mom says that the humans are just big dogs that walk funny, and he thinks a car is a big dog. He thinks a parking meter is a skinny person. Yeah, <laughs> but like he knows what a nickel is, and he knows what a snake is. I don't, I don't buy it. I don't buy it. Yeah. No, that was really strange. I it just, I mean, we can maybe assume that the the nice old couple just um just sat down with him like he would a child and explained the world to him, maybe. <laughs> so yeah, this movie is a John Travolta and Kirstie Alley led film. Uh, also starring is David Gallagher, Tabitha Lupien, Lizette Anthony, Olympia Dukakis, Danny DeVito, and uh, Diane Keaton, George Siegel. And uh, Charles Barkley playing himself. Uh, Tra- Charles Barkley. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> um, and I should say David Gallagher is the kid from Seventh Heaven. He's one of the children from that Simon show. from Seventh Heaven. Simon, yes, yes, he is Simon. Yeah, so he went on to bigger and better things. Tabitha Lupin, I was looking at her filmography. She She did some stuff here and there. She was in the John Travolta Hairspray film. I'm not sure who she played, but she was, she's was. she been in some other films. Um, everybody else is, you know, fairly famous uh, actors and actresses. I, d- I did look up Tabitha to see what else she'd been in and to look at some pictures of her now, and she really outgrew that Danny Torrance vibe. Oh, my God. She <laughs> does look just like yeah. Danny Torrance. Yeah, it's fucked up. Especially when she's watching the TV, like there's just a lot of those kind of shots in in The Shining, and then there's a lot of shots of just like her face, like blankly staring felt, at something. It felt almost like an intentional horror vibe that was really out of sync yeah. with the movie. <laughs> this movie has a zero percent on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> yeah, our first our first zero percent. <laughs> uh, the audience did like it a little bit more because it's twenty nine percent there, but that's still pretty damn low especially for a, a family talking animal comedy piece. Yeah, I mean, especially for the third in a series of a fairly popular series, um, it's, yeah, it's pretty damn low. Uh, it had a $22 billion budget, and it only made $10 million at the box office. <laughs> yeah, that's also one of the worst that we've seen on this podcast so far. Um, I have the opening lines of a Roger Ebert review here, and... Um, 
they don't really elucidate anything. They're just hilarious. Uh, <laughs> so Roger Ebert starts, uh, Look Who's Talking Now is a fairly misleading title for those who paid any attention during English class. Since the talkers are dogs, and so the title, of course, should be Look What's Talking Now. <laughs> That's speciesist. So pedantic. <laughs> it's so pedantic. I love it. Um, and then he goes on to say, anyone who paid attention during English will also find innumerable other distressing elements in the film, including what teachers used to call lack of originality and aptness of thought. <laughs> Ouch. So. It's a shame that we use Ebert so much. Yeah. We do. Yeah. Well, I guess he's ubiquitous. Well, it's it's hard with older films to find reviews. Um, a lot of reviews just kind of summarize the film because the plot is so absurd and they were just like look at this <laughs> this is insane um but i mean we'll do that so i didn't need anybody else to do that for us <laughs> we do have this other piece by mark savlov of the austin chronicle oh yeah uh i i included this one because uh it was kind of uh, emblematic of the utter disdain most reviewers had for this film <laughs> and we'll join them uh savlov writes the amazing thing in Rupwelski's film is just how much of this lowest common denominator pablum has been recycled from the foul spillage of the previous two films. Once again, needlessly, we're treated to lengthy scenes of the family singing and clowning about with treacly plasticity, fantasizing, dreaming, whining, mewing. It's all too much, grating on your nerves and leaving you desperately in need of a healthy dose of cinematic sanity. Or, at the very least, genuine humor. Okay, I'm gonna... I'm going to take issue with Mark here, though, because it sounds like what upset him the most was the scene where they sing the Alvin and the Chipmunks song. And I thought that was the most sort of human moment in the film. It was, you know, their, yeah. their young son just found out Santa's not real. And they're trying to do this sort of like cute family moment where they re-inject their sad son with the Christmas spirit. Like that to me was the sort of the, the most realistic element of what should have been a normal Christmas movie. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Uh... And it was cute. Yeah, it was cute. It had like it had really good normie vibes. Like it was one of the few scenes where it's like, you know what? This is just a normal family who has normal problems, who doesn't have weird talking dogs and weird psychosexual energy. Like it was just it was a nice little scene. And then the rest of this movie happened. It was, it was a cute moment in what was otherwise a movie about a horny dog and a failing marriage. <laughs> yes. The opening was kind of like that too with the still shot of of the hallway and everyone's running back and forth just trying to get ready for bed. And seeing that opening, I was really thrown off by the rest of the movie. Yeah. Because it it cut right to a horny dog after that. Yeah. <laughs> like this this movie opened with a shot of dog sperm swimming through the vaginal canal of a dog and all of the sperm had New York accents. <laughs> yep. Yep. I see the, the yep. most the most concerning aspect of that to me though is that the sperm that becomes the puppy that is Danny DeVito had Danny DeVito's voice, which to me tells me that the writers right. of this film ascribed to the 17th century of pre 17th century theory of preformationism, where the sperm is a tiny man that grows into a larger person <laughs> inside the vessel of the woman, which it really speaks to the the violent misogyny of this film and its lack of understanding of science. 100. percent It kind of looks like a ride from Epcot Center. I don't know if it was computer-generated imagery or what. The little sperms swimming around this very uh, well-lit canal in, that are going to go on to become like individual dogs. Um, but the rest of the fantasy sequences after that are kind of a letdown because that one is so batshit. What's that movie or that book that's about going inside of a person? Uh, the Amazing Journey. Yeah, it's like Magic The Amazing Journey, bus. except... yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> all of that except hornier and about dogs. Yeah, it's a hell of a way to kick off your talking dog family comedy. This was not for children. No, no. No, this I was whole surprised. movie was extremely horny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it has big divorced dad energy, <laughs> um, especially like the whole having an affair subplot, um, which we can get, get, get into more later. Um, but that was very pandering to guys who think they're John Travolta but are in their 40s. Yeah. Yeah, although this is like the least sexy, least cool version of John Travolta I think I've seen on film. Like even Michael when he's an angel, like I'd be, I would be more willing to fuck him than the John Travolta in this movie. Oh, what about when he's Turl from Battleship Earth? Yes, oh. still. I think that's who this movie is for, though. Is is nerdy dads in their 40s that think they could attract a hot younger woman yeah exactly but they don't actually get with the hot younger woman so that that like buttresses their failure yeah yeah um altogether the conceits and themes of this film are some of the most regressive that we have seen here at procon <laughs> it, it really is um so yeah this movie does start off like we said establishing the family life the domestic bl- bliss of the, of the upracina upracchio yeah, I have no Ubriacho? idea. Ubriacho? I think that's the closest approximation <laughs> to whatever this... Uh, they, said it, they said it so many times, and I, I don't got it. Yeah, no. I And it's, yeah, it's the most made-up, like, racist Italian name I've ever heard as well. <laughs> we're, we're introduced to their dynamic, and it's it's kind of wild that we did this movie because it's the third of a trilogy. So supposedly the audience has uh, some sense of who these people are uh, from the other movies, the first two. Uh, I mean, I just saw the posters for the first two. I know nothing else about them. Um, I imagine they have to do with Kirstie Alley and John Travolta falling in love and having these children. I think the only thing, so it's been a long time since I saw them, but I think the only thing you need to know from the first two movies for this movie to make sense is that in the Santa sex dream, when Santa takes off his Santa clothes and is like an old man in a smoking jacket, yeah. that's Mikey's biological father. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that you missed is sex, sex dream Santa is her former lover. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. So the the basic plot of the first one is uh, she's having an affair. Uh, she's having an affair with her boss, played by George Segal. She has a kid in the back of John Travolta's taxi cab. Um, Talk as about a cute. <laughs> Placenta. That is wild. Yeah. And then at the end, they have they have a biological child together. So Kirstie Alley and John Travolta have a kid, and that's the child who is the main kind of character of the second film played by Roseanne Barr in the first film it's the voice of Bruce Willis for their child Mikey wait wait the so the babies have ADR voices mm-hmm yeah yeah that's, that's the why conceit they of the that's original the conceit. Films. yeah 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 they should they should have ADR'd Bruce Willis and Roseanne Barr over Mikey and Julie in this movie <laughs> <laughs> it's true that'd be incredible okay this series is strange because I had no idea that that aspect was there with the babies and by all accounts, people love the, the first film. Uh, Amy Heckerling, as I said, you know, director of Fast Times at Richmond High, Clueless, a incredible director. You know, I, I, I have faith that the, the original film is watchable. Um, and uh, yeah, she really, um, she got out while the getting's good, definitely. Because this, um, I mean, I'm sure if she made this film, if she had anything to do with it besides a, a character credit, uh, she would not have done were chosen to uh, write any of these lines of dialogue. So I guess we can dive right into the plot of this movie. Ah, uh, yes. 
Yeah, like we said, we're introduced to the Luciano crime family. <laughs> <laughs> then we see the amazing journey going through the dog dick. Then we meet Dan DeVito as a puppy, Rox, who's immediately put up for adoption. Well, his mother is a spaniel, and it's um, implied that she got out at some point and had uh, relations with, I think it's a German shepherd. It's like the scene after the opening scene with, with the Umbriaco family is the, the dogs on a date. And then um, he, uh, this is also, this is the beginning of the end for me, really, when the <laughs> German shepherd dog, he's like, oh, uh, I have to go in for a procedure tomorrow and I might not make it. And then the Spaniel's like, oh, no. And then like cut to the sperm going through the vaginal canal. So so it's not anthropomorphic dog sperms, it's anthropomorphic date rape dog sperms. Yes. Which which makes me feel even more uncomfortable. Yeah. What if, it was sort of a, a cheesy and heavy-handed allusion to Lady and the Tramp, too. Like the, the mm-hmm. Cocker Spaniel and the stray dog, they look like the dogs from Lady and the Tramp. Yeah. Like, I, I, maybe I'm going to get canceled for this as a hot take. I don't like Cocker Spaniels, and they chose a very <laughs> ugly one. Like, Hollywood beauty standards are very unfair, but they picked a not cute dog. Yeah. Yeah, they did. I think that, again, is um, yeah, it's a product of their, like, misogyny, even towards female dogs. Like, they just went out of their way to pick an ugly female dog. Like, her uh, eyes looked all wet. I mean, just, no. No good. Maybe they were, like, trying to set up the scrappiness of the Danny DeVito dog. Like, oh, see, even his mother is ugly. No, it was like a, you know, she was the, the fancy dog from indoors, and the father yeah. was the scrappy dog from yeah. outdoors, which they replay with, with Rox and Daphne. And the way they anthropomorphize dogs is very much coded along class lines, uh, just like Lady and the Tramp. Um, very obvious. Stray dogs are working class, homeless people, and purebred dogs are upper class. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's really easy and really lazy, and it brings me to a, an essay by uh, critic and novelist, painter, poet, John Berger. Um, he wrote an essay called Why Look at Animals uh, from his book uh, about looking, and uh, he... he it's a a full essay about man's relation to animals, um, zoos, um, beasts of burden, pets, and such. Uh, Highly recommend everybody to take a look at it. That that sounds really interesting because he he wrote Ways of Seeing, which I like, um, Mm. which is a good primer on some new ways to view art, and we should definitely link that in the show notes. I read a free copy. Everybody can read this free copy. Um, So he speaks a lot about kind of like the history of anthropomorphism animals and um, what really struck me he he talks about uh, a French artist named Grandville uh, JJ Granville who did a series of sketches called public and private life of animals and uh, I'm gonna quote from uh, what Berger says here and I think it's really appropriate for this movie um, and it makes you think about just how we anthropomorphize animals on a whole um, so Berger writes These animals are not being borrowed to explain people. Nothing is being unmasked. On the contrary, these animals have become prisoners of a human social situation into which they have been press-ganged. The vulture as landlord is more dreadfully rapacious than he is as a bird. The crocodile at dinner are greedier at the table than they are in the river. I thought that was really interesting. That is such a good pull quote for this episode. Yeah. The animals in this movie 
are more dastardly, are hornier, are worse than any animal in the real world is. Um, and we see it scene after scene, you know, the horniness of that German shepherd um, who wants to date rape the Spaniel. That's, I'm sorry, folks out there, but that doesn't happen in the animal world. That's not how it works. Um, Anthropomorphization of, anim- of animals, especially in a kid's movie, is so commonplace that you kind of forget how much of a projection it is um, because animals are not people. Uh, we love animals. We care for them. We live with them. Uh, but their cognitive processes are fundamentally different from from those of people. I I, I don't know. It's it it seems like such an obvious thing to say. Uh, but dogs are not people. It's uh, it's just good to remember that kind of thing with with these kinds of movies. I think. But that's contrary to the entire conceit of this film, right? In the, in the space of this trilogy, they went. You know, the first movie is about a baby that talks. The second movie is about a baby that talks, and then they tried to transpose that exact same plot structure onto a movie where the dogs are the babies except they're horny. Yep. They they tried to to make it the same movie but with a dog instead of a person. Yeah. Yeah. Um I It didn't I, work. It no. didn't work. No. And I would hope like, that they did not make um they did not transpose the horniness of the babies onto the animals. I'm sure that's not how it is in the originals. I'm sure they're not horny. I have to rewatch the original. I bet I bet baby Bruce Willis says some horny stuff. You know, that's actually true. I, yeah. I bet you there are some crass breastfeeding jokes. I'm willing to bet oh you $10. Oh my god. Yes. Oh, folks, tweet at us that. Oof. Tell us please. So, what happens next in this movie? Okay, so the the puppy the puppy's in the box. Yeah. So the, the puppy doesn't go home with the with the ubriachos the first day, right? Like he's in he's in the box, and then some rough looking people take him. I think, but he he but he meets Mikey. Yeah, and there's like this predestination bullshit that's introduced here because when he meets Mikey, and he has a moment with Mikey, he's like, "Oh, you're a great master. You smell like cookies, and I love you." Uh, but he's pulled away by his overbearing mother. So the innocent love of a boy and his dog is ruined by like a treacherous woman. But to be fair, his mom got fired this morning from her job of nine yeah. years. Like in the timeline of this film, <laughs> yep. it's September and she just got fired. Yeah, it's totally fabricated. Well, another one of the main conceits of this film is why blame capitalism for all of your problems when you can just blame women? I mean, time yeah. and time again, it's really just women. They're, they're, they're at the, the uh, you know, the, the original sin of... Uh, of all of this, right? I mean, it's... Right, they're either, you know, an oversexed witch or just a shrill harpy at home. Right, yeah. Um, I would say I would say it's baffling, but then, you know, you think of every other film from the 80s and 90s, and it's, it's kind of right in that tradition, honestly. You know, this is... Uh, and to say that it's gone is, uh, of course, naive as well, right? I mean, like, go see any comedy, probably, and we'll see a lot of this stuff continue, just uh, maybe more packaged in consumer feminist language, more or less. So John Travolta gets a new job because he's like so funny and he can break through the shell of the evil witch villainess of the movie. Samantha's her name, I think. Debon. Debon, yeah. The yeah. dog is after Debon. Oh my God. <laughs> oh shit. Holy shit. I didn't even think about that. I didn't get that. I, I didn't catch that on both watches. <laughs> So initially, she's very skeptical. She's presented as as very snobby, high class, posh British uh, Wunderkind type CEO of a powerful company. Uh, and of course, after a few minutes of interviewing John Travolta, um, he has her wrapped around his little finger because he's so charming and funny. Um, he gets a job, of course, and it happens at the same time that Kirstie Alley gets fired. 
which happens specifically because of the recession. Like that's specifically called out in the script. And then from there, we see Christy Alley take a job as a mall elf. Um, okay, I I have I have to talk about this timeline. I watched this movie two <laughs> yes, times. Please. I watched this movie two full times in the last twenty four <laughs> hours because I, on the first watch I thought this timeline doesn't make any sense. But you know, there's probably somebody's job. Like there's a script supervisor. Like somebody's job is to make sure that this kind of shit doesn't happen. So I watched it again to make sure. So at the beginning of the movie, Mikey is drawing a picture about what he wants from Santa. And Kirstie Alley tells him, it's September. That's the day she gets fired. The day she gets fired, they see the box of puppies. So Rox is, you know, presumably eight weeks old at that time because that's how how old the dog is when you adopt it out. So in September, Rox is eight weeks old. Flash forward to her as a mall elf. That can't be any later than, like, Thanksgiving. That's, That's when mall Santa shows up is right after Thanksgiving. So it's been two and a half months at most that's yeah. the week they get the dog this dog went from eight weeks old to like four years old in yeah, two and a yeah. half months <laughs> fully grown dog <laughs> which makes his romance period. with makes his romance with daphne fully inappropriate like this dog is at most five months old daphne is seven yep i, I remember she does say that and their their date she says she's seven years old yeah the only possible explanation i can think of is that it's not a jump of just a month but a whole year a full year. So she's she's been unemployed for a full year, and the children didn't get any older. <laughs> that VHS of Charles Barkley playing basketball would have worn out by now. Julie watches it so much. She watches it so much. They also use that shot of her watching it twice in the film. Like they use that exact shot of her face, and then behind uh, behind her back, they just they just reuse that. So that actually is a tell that it's a whole year later because it's it's a visual clue that she was doing this uh, that September, and then she's doing it the next September. Ah, see, all is right in the world of Look Who's Talking Now. <laughs> this is kind of a stealth Christmas movie, right? Like, I wasn't prepared for it to be like that. Uh, Christmas movies now seem different from Christmas movies of the 80s and 90s um, because the holiday is held up as the ultimate non-denominational spiritual conclusion to the year. Uh, and, and going along with that, the belief in Santa is, is so sacrosanct in these types of movies. Um, I guess that's kind of a stand-in for the loss of innocence of a child, uh, right? But it, I don't know. It just strikes me as a weirdly inviable law. Well, that's, that's the two primary conflicts in this movie, right? Is Kirstie Alley not believing her husband won't cheat on her and Mikey not believing in Santa. And the final 45 seconds of the film resolves both of those at the same time. Like, as, as Kirstie Alley and John Travolta are making out in the ranger's cabin after she realizes that he wasn't cheating on her, the ranger, like, interrupts them kissing yep. to play Santa on the radio, and then Mikey believes in Santa again. So in, in one yep. moment, they sort of resolve both of those conflicts. So what happens when Mikey eventually realizes that Santa doesn't exist? Is that going to be the ultimate dissolution of their marriage? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, considering John Travolta is Santa, as is established, or as Mikey believes in those last seconds, um, or at least is a perfect proxy for Santa, you know, the bringing of presents, bringing of good cheer and tidings, and bringing the the parental unit back together, all that wrapped in that, you know, nice little bow, like Molly was saying. So, yes, then when he stops believing in Santa, um, Christy Alley can get a divorce and murder John Travolta in his sleep. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, but back to that first Santa scene. Uh, that's when Mikey's faith in the divine is shaken because he sees the Santa actor taking off his beard and he says, you're a fake. Yeah. Well, he's, he he meets Gabagool Santa, 
because <laughs> Santa owes... Oh, oh, like a uh, big pussy from The Sopranos. Yeah, yeah. He owes money to the mob. He's on the phone with, like, his bookie. And he's like, yeah, send those guys down here. I don't care. Yeah, it's totally that. It's wild. Uh, and this is the scene where they sing Elvin and the Chipmunks, right? Uh, right directly after, after this, yeah. Because mm-hmm. he's heartbroken. Yeah, and I don't want to dismiss believing in Santa as a kid is inherently bad or anything. It, it's just... It, like this movie lives or dies by it and it, it, it it's just odd to to work around but it's it's a it's like a rookie fucking parenting mistake right so the, mikey's heartbroken because he found out santa's not real and so to cheer him up john travolta gets him a dog like the next day but if mikey wanted a dog for christmas and you want to restore his faith in christmas why not just wait the three weeks until christmas and have santa bring mikey the dog yeah no it's true um again just John Travolta is such a corny loser fuck up in this movie. He can't even do that right. Um, he could have saved himself all this trouble if he just just waited a few weeks. Also, just what kind of terrible husbanding? Like, you know, you're going to be out of town for weeks, and you know, bring your wife this <laughs> new, like without her permission, without her consent, just bring this dog into the home. Yeah, like, you know, you're not going to be around. Yeah, yeah. Did we mention that he's a he's going to be a pilot for the? Samantha Dubon person. Didn't we say that? Yeah, it should be noted that Travolta's absence plays a very big part of this movie. Yeah. Yeah. He's barely in this movie, honestly. Like, John Travolta has maybe three or four scenes, and they're kind of like all the same. It's just like him on a phone talking to Kirstie Alley saying, yeah, I'm going to Tucson today. I'm going to France. Yeah, they get a lot of mileage out of that cockpit set. Um, there are like a ton of shots of him just sitting there talking nonsense into his headset. Yeah, he really phones it in for this Literally. one. Literally. Literally. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so as, as I was saying, we immediately go to the dog adoption scene, the dog prison. We see a Scottish terrier. We see a chihuahua. And uh, you can only guess what accents that those voiceovers are. Oh, don't, and don't forget the Nazi German Shepherd. Yes, yes. The Nazi German Shepherd as well. Um, again, this goes back to what John Berger was saying, is that when we anthropomorphize animals now, we give them worse qualities than they have in, in the real world. We we give them our worst fucking qualities. We have to make the Chihuahua the most racist Mexican accent you can think of, and we have to make the German Shepherds yell something about following orders. When the pit bull wants to kill the dog cop, which I support. Yeah, that's actually, the, that's the good one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. they all start chanting, kill Dave, which is the name of the dog catcher. I thought that was incredible. The dog catcher has big Dennis Rader vibes. Dennis Rader was the BTK killer. He was a serial <laughs> yes. killer active in Kansas in the 90s. But interesting, it's like BTK wasn't arrested until 2005. But at the time this movie was made, Dennis Rader was the dog catcher in Park City, Kansas. So I, I oh, think damn. the writers knew something. Yeah, yeah, they totally. <laughs> We're going to retcon the BTK killer into the look who's talking cinematic universe. Yeah. And that chronology would actually make more sense in the movie's timeline. Uh, so smash back to home and we find out that not only do they have one dog, uh, but now they have two because John Travolta's controlling, micromanaging, villainous boss has given her dog to the family. Um, and everyone, of course, makes a big point about how her dog is all well-trained and was trained at... Um, the, the Radcliffe of obedience schools. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right, Radcliffe. And... That sets up the dynamic of the well-trained poodle versus uh, the scruffy mutt. Um, And, of course, that leads into the extended montage sequence, which takes up most of this movie's runtime. Yeah. um, 
I have another John Berger quote actually from that essay uh, that I think plays really well into this whole scene um, and just all the scenes of domesticity um, and the and you know domesticating animals and such. Um, so John Berger starts here: uh, the small family living unit lacks space, earth, other animals, seasons, natural temperatures, and so on. The pet is either sterilized or sexually isolated extremely limited in its exercise, deprived of almost all other animal contact, and fed with artificial food. This is the material process which lies behind the truism that pets come to resemble their masters or mistresses. They are creatures of their owner's way of life. So Daphne is 100% a creature of her owner's way of life, uh, rich, pampered. Um, although it breaks down here because in this movie... As we've said, they are not sexually isolated. That is that is something we do not have in this movie. We do not have sexual isolation. Kirstie Alley does threaten to sterilize her husband. So it, in the scene immediately after Samantha leaves him with the dog, she pulls him aside and she says, you fix this or I will fix you. And she does a snipping motion, like threatening to cut off her husband's testicles if he doesn't get rid of the dogs. This part is cool because not only do we get a Princess Diana reference, but also one for uh, Lorena Bobbitt. Uh, which also happened in 1993. Um, so yeah, getting back to the Berger quote, I guess the animals are sexually isolated because animals' mating instincts uh, are often funneled through um, a monogamous uh, cis-heteronormative lens, uh, which isn't accurate to reality. Yeah, yeah. You know, I was just thinking something too. The um, the courtship between Daphne and Rox mirrors and is the inverse of the courtship of uh samantha and john travolta yeah so for whatever that's worth that's that's fascinating because samantha is is like this femme fatale stereotype uh who's trying to tear apart john travolta's marriage and, and claim her for claim him for her own yeah so again it's perfectly fine because danny devito the scrappy young pup can do it he can be super horny but but it's not okay when it's the ice cold billionaires home wrecker when you know so after the montage of of the dog dynamics we get another surreal uh, dream sequence um it's it's what's her name julia julie. uh just julie yeah. uh julie's fascination with charles barkley she has kind of this twin peaks vibe uh fantasy of, of like schooling him and, and dunking on him <laughs> i mean the little girl is a good actor for a kid uh she emotes well and i don't know how real this was but the dribbling she was doing with the basketball w- was really cool so imdb imdb says tabitha lupian did her own basketball stunts but i have yep. in my notes that it appeared to be a stunt toddler because you never see her face during right. the dribbling sequence right I I that I, I read that trivia and I was like, oh, cool. So we're going to see like full body. She's going to be doing these stunts. I also thought she'd be older. But no, you're right. They don't show her face when she's doing those dribbling stunts, when she when she dribbles it through her legs, when she uh, what are the other tricks she does? She just does some other, you know, kind of uh, standard dribbling tricks. I, like, I don't know. Did they use a little person? I'm not sure like what they did in that scene and then why IMDb would claim that she did her own stunts. <laughs> And it's like they tried to they tried to like they tried to obscure the fact that they were hiding her face by also hiding Charles Barkley face. You know, they they cross cut from her dribbling yeah. to him dribbling. They don't show either of their faces. But like, I'm pretty sure Charles Barkley definitely did his own. <laughs> no, they probably subbed in a Harlem Globetrotter. 
how many dream sequences are in this film? Four. I mean, there's the one where they're both having one at the same time. So I guess you can count right. that as one or two. But I guess four, including like when John Travolta has that sort of daydream sequence of yeah. his wife identifying his body. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then there's the one where Kirstie Alley is, it's like more of a flashback when she's like in the 70s. Oh yeah, right, right, right. Have you have you ever wanted anything so bad? And they're they're talking about Mikey wanting a dog, and she remembers wanting breasts as if yep. those are comparable desires. Yep, yeah. I thought that was like insane. I just like I <laughs> says so much about this movie. Like there, the crystallization of this movie is like that scene right there. <laughs> then then in the parallel dream sequence, which we can talk about now, I guess, uh, when John Travolta and Kirstie Alley are missing each other, uh, Kirstie Alley's fantasy scene involves her dissolving samantha but leaving behind just breast implants oh right. yeah that's right yep so i guess we know it was on the screenwriter's mind yeah. i would like to up my bet that the previous movie contains crass breastfeeding jokes to 100 dollars. <laughs> <laughs> that parallel dream sequence is actually kind of interesting because john travolta is he's like jet setting around the world um kirstie ellie's struggling at home uh still partially employed taking care of the kids um and they're both having dreams of the other one cheating on them um, in Kirstie Alley's case, she imagines John Travolta and Samantha dance in the tango. Well, no, they're actually dreaming of themselves cheating. No, Aren't no, they? they're dreaming of each other. Really? I thought when we go to that um, Did you watch it screen... twice? Did you watch it twice? <laughs> no, I watched it once, thankfully. Okay, so they're dreaming of the other... Okay. Oh, but yeah, the, you know what? That's right. But the dreams cross-pollinate, and then they're with each right. other. Right. Okay, that that's the part that... Okay, I got a little confused there, folks. Sorry. And I'm the guy who went to film school. <laughs> there are some really surreal and unexpected aspects to the sequence. Um, they meet in Dreamland, and they share a dream together, and their insecurities synthesize. I don't know. It was it was really wild for this movie. I thought it was interesting. So there, there are several sort of fantasy sequences but the, of the three true dream sequences the main character in the dream is always wearing sequins and that seems like a very intentional choice like when julie's playing basketball with charles barkley she's wearing this basketball uniform with sequins that's right and in the dance sequence um you know samantha's wearing that glittery gown and in the santa sex dream um she's wearing like a really sparkly red dress and those are the only sparkly items in the film yeah and it seems very lazy and weird <laughs> Like, you're, you're demarcating dream space with sequins. Yeah. Or they're establishing a visual vocabulary. Hmm. <laughs> in, a, hmm. in a very heavy-handed, strange way. <laughs> well, um, it's actually a reference to the uh, glittery, glitterization and commercialization of Christmas. Oh, I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Classic uh, figure of Christmas, Charles Barkley. <laughs> Oh, and that Charles Barkley doll is fucking terrifying. Oh, my God. These dead oh, staring God. eyes and this so weird, ridiculous. like, paper mache skin. Yeah, and it's like a stretch Armstrong. Like, it has, like, really long arms and legs, and it's all noodly. Yeah. I got some really good screenshots of that. <laughs> I guess not much else happens plot-wise until Samantha tries to keep John Travolta working over Christmas. But right. I do want to really quick... Um... One thing I noticed about the scene where they go to the French restaurant, so in between his two prolonged business trips during the month of December, um, he's home briefly, and he takes his wife right. and his mother-in-law to a fancy French restaurant. Yep. And as 
As Samantha walks away and John Travolta gets up to go after her to give her her purse, which she left at the table, Kirstie Alley picks up the menu and the name of the restaurant is Les Liaisons. Yeah, and it, which yeah. I think is a reference to uh, Les, Les Liaisons de Giroux, which is a French yep. novel about um, sort of seductive and sort of cruel, manipulative seduction. Yep. Uh, which w- Wikipedia summarizes as two narcissistic rivals use seduction as a weapon to socially control and exploit others. I saw that and I was like, is that a reference to Dangerous Liaisons? And I was like, it can't be because like this is so much dumber than Dangerous Liaisons. <laughs> and if they're comparing themselves to this, like that's a fucking weird flex, but okay. But it lines up, you know? Yeah. Well, the term liaison has kind of taken on cultural baggage, uh, like an el- meaning, an illicit meeting between lovers. I-, I can see how most people would know the generic meaning of that term instead of the reference to the book or the movie. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's I don't know. I think it is actually a reference to dangerous liaisons. I think so. Yeah. Um, there's another, there's an actual... Um, version of dangerous liaisons well there's two there's the john malkovich adaptation of the book and then there's the um sarah michelle geller uh version um which is a is a contemporary version uh that one i forget what it's called cruel Um, intentions cruel intentions yeah it's cruel intentions (laughs) she like wants to fuck her stepbrother or something insane like that or her stepbrother wants to fuck her i think that's yeah he has to like deflower the most beautiful virgin at school it's insane yeah yeah heavy 90s energy yeah, the 90s is just, uh, yeah, it's all about dangerous liaisons, I guess. Which is awkward horniness in dogs, I guess. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's fairly, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, so what else happens in this movie? Okay, so it's, it's Christmas Eve. It's Christmas Eve, yeah, and he's got to yeah. come home. He's got to come home for Christmas with his family. He's been out of town for, I, again, based on my obsessive note-taking on the timeline of this film, he's been out of town since Thanksgiving. Um, and Damn. He promises kids. He's promised his kids he'd be home. Um, and his horny boss manufactures this scenario in which he doesn't get to go home. Oh, God, it's so convoluted. So Samantha mentions, like, a merger um, between her company and another one, which will cost her company 3,000 jobs, right? Um, But she also has this chance to save them. Um, However, that would require meeting the other CEO at his private cabin upstate on Christmas Eve, by the way, uh, to plead her case in real time. Um, all fabricated. So she needs John Travolta to fly her there immediately, causing him to miss Christmas dinner with his family. Um, and once they're there, uh, she sends a taxi away. She unplugs the phone line and she plants a fake fax. Yeah. <laughs> Classic nineties ruse. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. And, uh, and John Travolta's, uh, beeper is like this yep. prominent symbol yep. throughout the movie, but it's a symbol of the destruction of the family in like the corporatization of one man's free time. But the destruction of the beeper is what saves the family. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, it's a powerful symbol. <laughs> I mean, it is a compelling symbol. Yeah, it's true. We'll give it that. We'll give it that. <laughs> we are supposed to say <laughs> nice things about these movies. <laughs> but this this 10 minutes of the movies, I think, is the only really watchable part of it. This is the only part of the yeah. movie where something actually occurs. Yep. Which part of the movie? <laughs> so when, once once you get to the cabin and he realizes that he's been he's been taken advantage of, he realizes he's been fooled, and then Christy Alley does the only sort of the only the only moment of agency that Kirstie Alley has in this entire film is when she calls up the um, the other woman's office, pretending to be a florist to get the address of where she is, and then right. puts the kids in the car and drives upstate. Like that's that's her only sort of moment of agency in this film is that she, yep. she has this idea and she makes this choice. 
that, you know, if, if daddy can't come to Christmas, we'll take Christmas to daddy. And it was a bad plan. It was not a good plan, but it was the only point in the film where she actually takes some action. Yeah. I did like um, right before that when her and her mother have like that powwow scene where she's describing something that happened to Christy Alley's father where like he he his plane during World War Two like crashed on an island in the Pacific with like U- these USO girls and like she believed the girls that like they didn't do anything they just played like blackjack or something together gin rummy uh, gin rummy <laughs> I'm sorry yeah you you would know uh, they're t- two watches um, they there's like this quick cut where they just she's like oh your dad was a real charmer in the day and then they cut back to like her dad just like reading like something about like uh auditing history <laughs> it's like federal tax review yeah. actuarial <laughs> tables or, or something yeah. but that that's a callback that's a callback to the mother saying she could get samantha audited and samantha actually getting audited. it does get yeah <laughs> yeah uh involving the abuse of the irs for a petty lover's quarrel yeah yeah, but again, hey, you know, speaking of consistency, there is some consistency there in terms of like the script supervisor actually doing their job, right? So, you know, kudos. I think maybe the script supervisor should be our worker of note. <laughs> Although maybe not because the timeline is kind of fucked up. <laughs> also, so the day before Christmas Eve, the date Julie marks off. So the calendar is sort of... It's, a character in this film. They, they mark, they're marking off days on the calendar throughout December as, as their dad yeah. is not home and it gets closer and closer to Christmas. When they go to sleep the night before Christmas Eve, Julie's marking off December 22nd. <laughs> I'm firing the script supervisor. Yeah, never mind. I take back that kudos. <laughs> That's incredible. Um, I guess we should mention as we race toward our conclusion that there had been a conflict set up between Rox and... What's the other dog's name? Daphne. Daphne, Daphne Rox and Daphne. Uh, they kind of resent each other, even though Rox is like horny as hell for her. And eventually they sneak out one night to go have a night in the town. And ha- they have like a little Lady in the Tramp thing, um, like a date in the back of the Chinese restaurant. Um, and Daphne also learns about the joys of mud, calling it sensual. Oh, yep. God. Yep. Yep. I was just picturing Diane Keaton in the sound booth saying those words. <laughs> I'm just feeling bad because she did not get paid enough for that. No, she definitely did not. She's like, yeah, I've never seen mud before in my life. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Um, and then she steps in it and it blows her mind. Yeah. It really blows her mind. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of talk of her dog butt as well throughout this. Like there, because she's a poodle and uh, she has a, a really strange haircut. And they just, they're always talking about like how her butt is naked, like throughout this film. Maybe three or four me- mentions of it. This movie is so, I I don't really want to use the word degenerate because that's an alt right term, but it, it's so uncomfortable. Yeah. It is very uncomfortable. But, but so. But the night before they have their like nice date on the town and become friends. Uh, so Rox is kind of on thin ice the whole movie. Like, he's he's not a good dog. He pees in the house. He eats stuff. Um, he's eaten some shoes. And Kirstie Alley had said, like, if he eats one more shoe, like, he's out of here. We can't keep this dog if he eats any more shoes. Right. And so Daphne, who doesn't like Rox, takes it upon herself to frame him for the eating of a very expensive shoe. But this is before yep. they become friends. Which, again, okay, back to the timeline, though, unfortunately, um, Daphne <laughs> Daphne chews the shoe the night they get a babysitter to go to the French restaurant. They get home from the French right. restaurant. His pager goes off. He has to go back on another business trip. On this business trip, he goes to London, San Francisco, Reno, Dallas, and some additional location that he calls from. The phone's been knocked off the hook. They don't have that conversation. So he's gone for probably a week. Yeah. 
Kirstie Alley doesn't find the chewed up shoe until many days later. Yeah, many days later. So not to play apologist for, for this movie, but maybe Daphne <laughs> hid the shoe after chewing it? I mean, what kind of, if you're know, trying to frame though. someone, why would you hide the evidence? Yeah, yeah. And Christy Alley is like so hyper focused on the shoes too. There's so many scenes prior to that during like the the montages where, you know, he's chewing on a shoe or we see just a pile of chewed shoes. So one would imagine she's like really just keyed into where her shoes are at any moment, you know, if they're chewed or not. So it's just kind of crazy that it does take so long. Yeah, this took me out because if she's so hyper focused on her shoes, why doesn't she just shut the goddamn door to her bedroom? You've obviously well, never had a puppy. Well, rocks can open doors. That's how they escape. So yeah, it doesn't matter. Can, which means they yeah. don't lock the door to their apartment. Oh, I, I know. And, and this is New York. Like people are paranoid. Everybody. I'm from New York. I know everybody locks every lock on their door. Every multiple like, deadbolts. Twenty. Yeah, multiple deadbolts. <laughs> the little chain thing. Everything. Yeah, rock, rocks can pick locks. Yeah, he. I mean, you know, the, his whole character is having some kind of street savviness, right? So there we go, folks. But no, so because of this frame job, Kirstie Alley says they're going to get rid of rocks. And this is on Christmas Eve. So Mikey's, right. Mikey's upset. Um, John, Tra- John Travolta's not home. Hey, Mikey, I'm sorry your dad broke his promise, but we're going to get rid of your dog, too. Merry Christmas. The dog we got you for Christmas, we're getting rid of it. <laughs> And so Kirstie Alley puts together this plan. Um, She whips her kids into shape, packs her kids in in the presents into the taxi cab. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, we didn't mention that that John Travolta used to drive a taxi. Yeah. So he used to be a taxi driver. Remember, she gave birth to Mikey in the back of his cab. In the back of the cab, yeah. And what is being a private pilot if not a sky taxi? (laughs) Driving a car and driving a Cessna are the same. (laughs) Armed with the knowledge that uh, Kirstielli obtains from a secretary, uh, they go up to the cabin. Uh, once they get into the upstate wilderness, um, however, they crash and they, they slide down a hill and they're stuck because they, they, they slammed into a tree. Um, and because this is 1993 and they don't have cell phones yet, they don't know what to do. Um, and this is our introduction to the racist wolf gang. Um, so Kirstielli is set upon by, by this wolf, this nasty wolf who has this really stereotypical... Um, Hollywood, like, inner-city thug voice. Um, and, and then Rox jumps in to fight him. Amazing. Just incredible. Samantha, at this point, is spinning this sob story about how her parents never loved her and how she never had a normal high school um, experience or anything. Um, and she doesn't know how to dance. And, and that's how she tricks John Travolta into teaching her. Yeah. Um, she's like, oh, I've never danced before. So he teaches her that. Um, and that's when she makes her move. Uh, he he's totally repulsed and turned off, um, but he's rescued by Rox and Justin at a time. Yeah, we get an extended fight sequence of Rox and this wolf. Um, a lot of slow motion. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it was it was quite something. But uh, Rox bests the wolf. Uh, he gets a minor scrape on his arm. Um, well, actually, I don't know if minor is the right word because it, it bleeds a lot. There's a lot of dog blood in that scene. Um, and then uh, Daphne escapes. She gets out of the car, and she's. They talk about like using their nose to find their humans, and of course Daphne can't do it right because you know she's this pampered rich girl dog. She's never had to use her instincts to do anything like you know sniff someone out. Um, but uh, 
Rox teaches her quickly. She goes to find the uh, park rangers, and, and Rox goes to the cabin in the woods to find uh, John Travolta and Samantha. When, while they're dancing, as he's dipping her, he, as he leans over to dip her while they're dancing, he sees that she's unplugged the phone and he drops her on the floor and he realizes this whole thing has been a trick. Which, like, I, he really jumped to some conclusions there from an unplugged phone. <laughs> I mean, he was right. Yeah, he was right. But it, it, it was just kind of pat. It was just like, all right, we got we to gotta figure this one out somehow. And this is it. Like, it's just going to be any immediate. He just, like, turns on her immediately. Um, You're a horrible person. Yeah. <laughs> And this is what I mean when, when I talk about the divorced dad energy, like the idea that this that this younger, um, attractive, uh, very successful woman would like throw herself at you and, and deliberately set up this trick, like like this trap just for you, you know, like setting up something that yeah. extreme. Um, it, it, it's really pandering um, and is it's frankly one of the most unbelievable parts of the movie. Yep. So then you can be the hero and you never have to go to family court ever again. <laughs> Yeah, this movie Red Pill John Travolta. <laughs> oh my god, it's so true. Uh, this this movie is just like the perfect movie for 1993 though, really. Like if you think about it, it's just like it's this uh, it's this like end of history fucking, you know, we can we can be racist, we can be sexist, we can be a family unit. It's just it's quite incredible, folks. Um don't watch it though. Please don't watch it. <laughs> it's just not good no no the adr didn't really match up um i mean it matches up with what happens on screen but it it just isn't charming so like Mm -hmm. talking dog immediately says to me like oh this is a movie for kids nothing about this movie is for children no every laugh line every laugh line in this movie is something grossly sexual yep oh yeah like I know it's it's normal for it's normal for kids entertainment to have like some jokes that are obviously for adults, but like kids right. wouldn't get them, so it's not too gross for kids. Every joke in this movie was too gross for kids. Yeah, the only line that wasn't, and my favorite line that I had to write down was um, right when Rox is taken by the dog catcher. He says, "I didn't mean to steal that frisbee. I thought it was two calzones mating in midair." <laughs> The, the only joke I wrote down from this movie was 10 minutes in. So right after Kirstie Alley gets fired. And so she goes to the airport to find her husband to talk to him. And she's like, why would you interrupt your husband's job interview with your children? Like, that's a terrible choice. But so she goes to the airport to find her husband and she meets Samantha and she introduces Samantha to the kids. And Julie says, knock, knock. And Samantha says, who's there? And Julie just looks at her and says, transsexual. Yep. What the fuck? Yep. I yeah, I, and then they they say, oh, she's been. We just got cable or something like that. She's been watching like TV at night. It's like, what? Why? <laughs> what is what is your child watching on television? Oh, and there's another transphobic illusion um, earlier when Julie is watching Charles Barkley. Um, it's it's when Kirstie Alley says that most girls watch princesses and ponies, uh, but their daughter is watching giant sweaty men. Um, so should they be worried about that? Oh yes, I do remember this. Yeah, I'm, I'm not unaccustomed to transphobic humor from the 90s uh, because that was kind of like the, the height of, of that type of humor in a lot of ways. Um, but this is th- this kind of very oblique reference, um, in addition to the overt reference earlier, um, it, it's just shitty. Right, right. It's, it is really the movie of the 90s, folks. Although I wish I had more like 90s uh, musical touchstones. Like there's really not a lot of 90s musical touchstones in this movie i think i think that song they play at the end have a little faith in me was contemporaneous 
Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. A lot of them aren't, though. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of Christmas music. Yeah, yeah. They do. The kids do sing the um, Jingle Bells, Batman Smells, Robin a Lays classic. an Egg. A classic. And I was like, this is me. I felt I the only time I was I at all related to those children. <laughs> a lot of Mikey's wardrobe is, is actually what I used to wear as a three-year-old kid in 1993. Mm. Um, yeah, a lot of teals and purples, like like kind of like <laughs> nylon windbreaker stuff. Uh, when either of you met Santa for the first time, did you have to wear like a tie the way that Mikey did? <laughs> no, well, maybe because I wore I used to wear a uniform to school. Mm. Yeah, 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 maybe. I think I feel like that's more of like an Easter thing though. To like if you meet the Easter Bunny, because Easter is more associated with dressing up nice on Sunday and such, but. I'm just thinking if like my parents would bring me to the mall to see Santa after school. Yeah, for your specific like trad Catholic childhood, <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. But for the rest of us, <laughs> I have pictures. I think of me like in a little baby suit on like the Easter Bunny's lap. Yeah, yeah, I think you've shown me that too. I think I, <laughs> I can't. I mean, I'm sure I visited Santa as a child. I can't think of any pictures of me with Santa as a child. Although I do take my dogs to see the mall Santa every year. Yes. And do I do you dress, dress them, them up. up. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> oh, what do you dress them up as? Um, so the first year I took Otto to see four different Santas just to sort of get a feel for what dog Santas were available in town. Um, and okay. I put him in a different costume each time, a lobster, a hot dog, um, just to really sort of get a feel for it. Uh, but now I take them both every year in um, their Christmas sweaters. They have matching Christmas sweaters. Oh, so so like that scene where where, you know, Samantha says, you know, I'll have someone bring Daphne's things by and Christy Alley goes, the dog has things. It's like, yeah, dog. Yeah. 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 Dogs have a wardrobe. So apparently this movie is more personal for all three of us than we're comfortable with. Uh, We have New York. (laughs) We have bringing dogs to go see Santa. Uh, We have dressing up in a suit and a tie as a little kid. And I, I feel on a very personal level the, the way John Travolta's pager interrupts so many of their family moments. You know, I, I grew up in a family, but my mom is a medical professional. So many, uh, many family yeah. dinners disrupted by the pager and not knowing when mom would come home. And um, she also worked Christmas a lot. So I, I feel that. And so the, the moment where, so, you know, Rox saves Christy Alley and the kids from the wolves. But then Rox goes and gets John Travolta and brings him back to the site of the car accident. But Daphne has already taken the kids to the ranger station, so they're gone. And so John Travolta's tromping through the, wolves, the woods with Rox, and they encounter the wolves again. And this time it's more wolves, and Rox can't fight them all. And what, what saves John Travolta is the wolf bites down on his beeper destroying it yep. and setting it off and the noise frightens the wolves. So the, so the death of the beeper, the sort of his his separation from that job that was keeping him from his family um, is what reunites him and is what saves him. So I, I, I strongly identify with the destruction of the beeper. I, I feel that <laughs> in my bones. Yeah. Yeah, they they destroy that symbol that, that uh, they had painstakingly set up in at least two other scenes earlier. Um, they, they do show the dogs hate beepers. Um, beepers is a symbol of corporate America of destroying the family which is interesting though because then, then like okay fast forward if we ever got another movie like what would they be doing for income you know like, they're both unemployed like Mary fucking both Christmas unemployed. Yeah. you have no money you have no income <laughs> I mean he can go back to driving that cab but it's not going to support the whole family she obviously had a pretty high paying corporate job well and he actually didn't wreck the cab nick i think you had said he wrecks uh, she or christy alley wrecks the cab but it actually there is that close-up shot where like the bumper actually doesn't hit the tree so the car could be fine i guess he could go back to being uh, a cabbie 
So getting back to our theories on the look who's talking now um, expanded universe, if we're talking about modern day reboots, um, John Travolta should be driving for Uber. Yeah. So apparently there was a TV show directly oh, no. after this. Yeah, from like 1993 to 1994 called Baby Talk. Um, but yeah, one season canceled. Uh, and then they've thought about rebooting it several times. And I'm sure it'll happen. I mean, it's, you know, we got um, you know, that. What was that really terrible Mel Gibson movie, What Women Want? That was just remade this past year or I think Why? this year. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but, you know, this time it was okay because it was a woman who could hear men's thoughts. I think oh, that would be gross. Yeah. Yeah, it's really essentialist um, if you can only yeah. if you can only hear what other, other genders think. Um, if you're going to have telepathy, it, it shouldn't pay attention to gender. Um, it, it, it's what anybody wants. That's, that's what you can hear. You know how they recently rebooted the Chevy Chase uh, vacation movies? Um, it was kind of a reboot, but at the same time, it was also a sequel because Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo are in it as their characters from the old movies. I can see them doing that kind of thing with this series. Yeah. Yeah. Not that they should. They should not. <laughs> they, they should, should not. not. <laughs> um, so, yeah, folks, that's uh, Lose, Look Who's Talking. <laughs> so, yeah, it ends with the happy reunification of the family and, and one little boy's belief in Santa Claus restored all in one fell swoop. Um, so we have some workers of note here. Um, I just wanted to highlight the animal trainers and that's really about it. Um, there were, you know, the, the animals were well behaved. Um, some of the scenes just with the dogs, uh, if you just like muted the film, you'd be like, you know what? Like there's some good like dog training and, and dog choreography here. Um, just overall good dog performances. I couldn't find the dogs' names, unfortunately, or else I would put that here. Um, but for animal trainers, we have uh, Stacy Brem, David Delasquay. Sorry, sir, I don't know how to say your name there. Uh, <laughs> uh, Jackie Martin, uh, Jerry Theron. And actually, Jerry Theron is uh, one of the more um, famous animal trainers in Hollywood. I mean, this guy's done countless films as far back as I think like the sixties. Um, uh, I think he still does stuff. I think he's still around. Uh, Carol Riggins, uh, Lee Stallenberger. And then we have uh, Mark Waters as an animal coordinator slash animal supplier. It's, it's also um, important to note here that animal trainers, Carol Riggins and Lee Stallenberger are uncredited uh, crew members. And therefore uh, they deserve a special shout out as usual. Yeah, for sure. Now that I think of it, before we get to our last segment here, um, did did we have a film term for this episode? Did we? Yeah, yeah, ADR. Oh, yeah. Oh, ADR. Yeah, yeah, ADR, uh, which is very important in all animal talking movies. ADR is important in talking animal movies, but it wasn't just the animals that were extensively ADR'd in this movie. <laughs> yep. But no, I, I messaged you guys last night, and I said, did, did they write the script after they filmed the movie? <laughs> <laughs> so, Lewis, tell us what it is. Yeah, no, I mean, some of the, especially in the first half hour of the movie, I mean, you can even see Mikey talking, but it's so obvious it's not Mikey's voice. It's not David Gallagher's voice saying these lines. Or if it is, it's perhaps him in a, in a sound studio later on. I don't know, like, I, I just, like, I do not know what happened. Maybe they had to wait, like, a little while. Maybe he had, like, a speech impediment or something. They had to wait. I, I do not know why, but it was, like, so stark in that first 30 minutes. Um, I could see a child actor flubbing a lot of lines. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, so ADR stands for Automated Dialogue Replacement. Um, it happens a lot in films. Just really any film is going to have ADR for any reason. Um, if someone has like a strong accent and they want to overdub that, um, if someone maybe flubbed a line, um, if they want to add a line into a shot, especially if like the person is their back is facing the camera and you can't see their mouth moving and they but they wanted to add a line of dialogue that made sense for the continuity of the film they'll do adr there um now i will say in the beginning scene of the film that we mentioned before it's there's a singular shot of the hallway the kids are going in and out of rooms bath time bedtime playing with toys and stuff um there's extensive adr there um and i think it's because they they probably didn't have like lavalier mics on everybody in that shot. I think they probably didn't actually do any sound for that. Like there's probably Foley effects, which is another film term, which is just effects, sound effects that are added in later, usually in a Foley booth. Um, the college that Nick and I went to actually had a really cool Foley booth that I was never allowed to use uh, <laughs> because I made a film uh, a little too early in my tenure there. Uh, so you were, I think you're only allowed to use it in your senior year. And I didn't exactly have a senior year because I graduated early. Um, Mr. Big Brain over here. Um, but yeah, so there's, I think that whole scene is Foley and ADR because there's, I don't think it'd be, it'd be hard to do a shotgun mic in that scene because shotgun mic usually has to be held from above and we're kind of seeing um, the whole hallway. So I, I really don't think there'd be any room for it. So I think that's why there's ADR there, but in other places it is baffling throughout this film when they use ADR. The dog sperm had no ADR though. That was real. <laughs> that was real. Like this uncredited dog camera uterus operator. <laughs> I don't know how they got the mic inside the dog's uterus, but, you know, kudos. <laughs> True worker of note there. Yeah. <laughs> like Miss Frizzle or something. Oh, my God. I should have stayed home today. <laughs> <laughs> very, yeah, very nice. Uh, Closing thoughts. Uh, not that we want to recommend this movie to anyone, um, but because we kind of have to, as as dictated by the, the structure of the show, uh, what do we have? Uh, so our broke recommendation is a very like 80s, 90s thing people love doing, which is to watch 80s, 90s cinema and argue what constitutes a Christmas movie. So one of the most famous examples of that is Die Hard, of course. It takes place during Christmas. There's a Christmas party that's interrupted by these terrorist attacks on this building. Um, and people love to say Die Hard's a Christmas movie. I mean, if you've ever met anybody who's ever talked about Die Hard, they, that's all they want to talk about. Yes, yes, I've been um, to Reddit at least once in my life. <laughs> um, so if, if that's something you like doing, then watch this movie so you have another film for your repertoire of pedantic nerd shit. <laughs> for our broke recommendation, uh, Danny DeVito stands, um, not only for his acting, um, but his politics especially, because those are pretty spot on. Um, he does a lot of good work um, in the real world in, for political causes. Unfortunately, um, he's he's in a lot of uh, crappy shit. He's <laughs> in a lot of bad movies. <laughs> um, but if you are a Danny DeVito completionist, um, because I know that there are non-zero amount um, of those out there in the world, um, you have to check out. You have to check out this movie. Yeah, and I do want to say the only part of this film that has like some progressive 
or leftist politics does involve Danny DeVito's character, Rox. So when we first meet Rox, when he becomes an adult, he befriends uh, a homeless individual uh, and, and, they, and they practice mutual aid. They give each other food. Um, they keep each other warm and secure and safe on uh, the hard life on the streets. Um, now, of course, Danny DeVito's character, Rox, then becomes uh, just like a lot of men on the left, problematic and canceled, unfortunately, <laughs> for everything else he does in this film. <laughs> but he, do- he does wear his red bandana the whole movie. Yes, yes. Molly, do you want to take the bespoke recommendation? Who we have here is uh, anyone who needs good antinatalist agitprop. I, oh, good God. They're not good parents. <laughs> this is a, a difficult family life. This is, you know, a woman whose, whose absent husband is not helping her raise these children. Charles Barkley is raising Julie. <laughs> <laughs> the dogs are raising each other. It's just chaos at home. Yeah, yeah. The one good contemporary thing from this movie is the meme of uh, of Julie shaking shaking her brush uh, when she's angry. Um, she scrunches up her face and shakes her fist um, when Mikey throws something at her. Julie does some of the best acting in the movie. She really does um, best acting and best stunts. <laughs> her lip syncing during the Alvin and the Chipmunk scene is just spot on. I do want to leave us with um, probably the best review of this film that I found um, and it was an IMDb user review. Now all IMDb user reviews you're allowed to add a title so um, I'll leave this one last. I just I, I, I compiled some of the best titles of these IMDb user reviews. Uh, this one reads look what has no story now. <laughs> um Look which series is failing now. <laughs> um, and this one is my favorite title. It's Look Who's Sucked. <laughs> Just who sucked. Um, but the, the review that I have to read, and it's a short one, folks. Uh, bear with me here. Um, I, don't, I don't think like English is this person's first language. I think they might have translated. I have no idea. They use, I think they use Google Translate. The title is called The Last of the Members. That is the title of the review. Back so, to the Lorena Baba joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so this person, uh, their user review, their username is Rapido Yes Blondie No, whatever that means. Uh, and they wrote it recently. July 30th, 2019. Um, uh, so, Rapido Yes Blondino says, Rocks, uh, spelled R-H-O-C-K-Z, uh, a bizarro streetwise crossroaded <laughs> who is having a show off with the females, the Daphne, a spoiled, serious and stern rodent woman <laughs> who has a hairstyle and stops at anything to the males. <laughs> That's the whole review. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Can you imagine what the translated versions of this movie are like? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I doubt they even released this film like in- internationally. And that's probably why it only has like a, a $10 million box office poll because it wasn't released anywhere outside of America. <laughs> don't watch this movie. <laughs> Please, folks, don't. Although if you want to, we all watched it free on uh, Sony's streaming service called Crackle. <laughs> Which was new to me, and I, I can yeah. see why it is free. 
Um, yeah. when, this, when this movie ended, it started auto-playing Predator, which yep. is just sort of the natural next film to watch after Look Who's Talking Now. Yep. I guess there's kind of a tenuous twins connection because Danny DeVito oh, or Arnold Schwarzenegger, maybe. And so I guess <laughs> it's not on, even the film Twins. On every, every movie on Crackle, um, underneath sort of the title and the year and the rating and the time, the runtime, uh, there's a little section called "Why It Crackles." Why is Crackling <laughs> Talking Dogs, voiced by Danny DeVito and Diane Keaton, are the definition of guilty pleasure? Oh my! What? God. What does that mean? No, this movie was not a guilty pleasure. Like, is it, these horny talking dogs are not anyone's guilty pleasure. Uh, I mean, if you like this movie, you should be on a list and you are guilty of something, but you should derive no pleasure from watching this movie. The commercials were really good, though. Um, yes. I got a lot of uh, Calzone commercials, but then also uh, it showed me a, a PSA with Will Ferrell about not using your phone during dinner followed by an ad for a Crackle original series starring Ron Perlman about some kind of tech company that causes terrorism. And it was a really good reminder of an important fact. Uh, Ron Perlman looks exactly like Will Ferrell in bad old age makeup. (laughs) Yeah, they just did the face app to uh, Will Ferrell and you get Ron Perlman. Wow, that's incredible. I I didn't get the Ron Perlman one, actually. I got the Calzone, the Pizzone. A lot of Pizzones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I got a lot for um, Amazon Fashion. Yeah. Yes, the the back to school ad. Yeah, it was like Amazon Fashion slash back to school. Yeah, like the ones where they show like a schlubby guy at the bar or a schlubby woman at, in a subway, um, and they fantasize about seeing themselves um, yeah, all glamorous yeah. in in this new outfit, and and then they order the yeah. outfit. And I think I, I, the Will Ferrell one, Molly, was that um, produced by like CommonSense.org, which was like is like the uh, parental yeah. ratings website. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, I saw a couple of PSAs about how you shouldn't use your phone while you have dinner with your kids, which actually goes really yeah. well with this movie. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, see, folks, you watched it now. You got every aspect of it. You got the commercials. You got the website. You don't have to even click on this. I can confidently say that this episode is uh, more entertaining than the movie itself. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, yeah definitely. Um yeah, so thank you, Molly, for uh, joining us today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Thank you very much, Molly. We are uh, we're sorry. <laughs> we are so, so, so I sorry. I love bad movies. I only watch bad movies, but this wasn't the good kind of bad. <laughs> this really isn't a class on its own. Um, it, it's really, really bottom rank, um, below every other film we've seen for this show, except maybe regarding Henry. Yeah, yeah, but that's awful in a different regard entirely, so... Um, again, thank you, Molly. Everybody subscribe to Molly's Patreon uh, and ours as well if you feel like it. But Molly does actual good work where we just do- joke about shitty movies. Yeah, a little different focus there. <laughs> All right. Uh, see you next week. See you next time. All right, you chipmunks. Ready to sing your song? I'll say we are. Yeah, let's sing it now. Okay, Simon. Okay. Okay, Theodore. Okay. Okay, Alvin. Alvin. Alvin! Ah!